When Russian forces invaded Ukraine earlier this year, today's guest was outraged, like a lot of Americans. So he traveled to see firsthand the human cost of this war. He's Dr. Michael Fine this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by Dr. Michael Fine, an author, physician, and public health expert. He spent time earlier this year on the Ukraine-Poland border so he could see firsthand the results of Russia's invasion. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here. Uh, you know, we had you on the show pre-pandemic. Uh, you're our first guest back in the studio in this new reality we're living in. So thank you for being with us today. Great to be here. Um, so I mentioned you spent time earlier this year uh, in Ukraine. Uh, you know, as, as so much of uh, the Ukrainian population is trying to get out, you were trying to get in. What, what led you to take that journey? Well, I sort of couldn't not go. Um, when I heard about the war, when I heard about the invasion, you know, it was really clear to me that the Ukrainians were on the forefront of the defense of democracy. Um, and what was happening there reminded me way too much of, you know, Hitler and Stalin. And so I just couldn't sit still um, and, and did everything I could to get there for about a month until I made the arrangements that made it necessary, uh, made I'm it possible. I'm curious about that that journey itself. I mean, so it's like you, you you don't fly into Kiev, right? You know, how do how do you how do you get into Ukraine in the middle of a of a war? Um, well, I, I ended up flying uh, to Warsaw, um, and then uh, to uh, a nearby city called Cheshov, um, which is the airport closest to the border, um, and then. I worked with a, an Ahmadiyya Muslim organization, which picked me up and brought me um, to uh, another closer city, and then to the border at Medica. So you were uh, you were part of an impromptu field hospital. That I think, as I understand it, is where you were stationed. Tell me what you did there, and then tell us also about the people you talked to who were fleeing Ukraine, because you did speak with a lot of them. Sure, sure. Um, though, you know, by the time I got there, much of the uh, exodus had diminished. Um, but I was in a field hospital or, you know, sort of little medical clinic that had been assembled at the border by an organization called Humanity First. Um, and, uh, you know, what we did every day was meet people as they were coming over the border. There was a sign out front that said, in Ukrainian doctor here. Um, people would come in and, you know, tell us about things they needed or ask for things, and we would try to deal with what they needed as they, as they came in. Everything we had was donated, so we had medicines from every country in the world, from a zillion, you know, in a zillion different languages. Um, we were actually pretty well equipped. Uh, we had a couple of ventilators and a defibrillator, which thank God we didn't need to use. Um, you know, we had surgical supplies and so forth. Um, so 
you know, most of our days were just meeting people as they came across the border and being part of an international response. I mean, at the border, there must have been 20 or 30 different uh, non-governmental organizations from all sorts of different countries, people providing uh, all sorts of services. There were actually three groups doing medical care. Um, that, you know, people would serve pizza and pancakes and, you know, coffee and tea. Um, there were people who uh, were meeting folks as they crossed the actual border and helping them carry their luggage. Um, and, you know, there was about a, I don't know, maybe a 500-yard walk from the border to where the buses were. Um, so there was kind of this, this great outpouring um, of volunteers helping folks who were leaving Ukraine in any way possible. The other thing that I got to do was um, go into the Ukraine, you know, a couple times, four or five times, almost every day, um, to, uh, to schools, which had become the places that people who were refugees from eastern Ukraine um, were staying. There would be groups of 50 to 100 people um, fleeing the actual fighting, and they were put in schools because the schools in Ukraine had closed, um, and they all the learning was, was distance learning at that point. So we did the medical care for people who were coming through. Did, did you hear from Ukrainians the trauma that they were experiencing? Did, did, even anecdotally, did, yeah, did folks you, talk about that? I mean, I guess it would have been through translation, but what, what, what were you hearing? What were you even sensing? Well, we the, sort of began to be, I mean, we were all pretty clear that the mental health aspect was going to be huge. You know, that the stress and the fear and the worry were, were huge. So everybody who sat down with us, you know, whether we were at, in the school inside the Ukraine or at the border, we specifically said, well, tell us what your life has been like for the last couple of weeks um, to give people a chance to talk about it if they could or wanted to. And some people would tear up and just, you know, I don't want to talk about it. Some people would tell us about they had spent three weeks in a basement in Mariupol, um, or there was a guy who uh, was on the uh, platform at the train station in Kamenetsk when the, the missile hit um, and saw the person in front of him go down and the person behind him go down. And... And, you know, he was kind of an interesting guy because he came in to say that he couldn't hear. And, you know, he'd lost his hearing. And first I thought it was because of the, 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 the impact. And then as we talked, I realized that he could hear, that he could hear perfectly well. What he was telling us was that his emotions were overwhelming his experience. And he was telling us, that he didn't want to remember and think about it. So we, we would hear stuff like that a fair bit as people talked about what they had to do to get out and how they had lived. You know, Michael, I, so you were there for a couple of weeks. Uh, the situation in Ukraine remains fluid, uh, although it seems like the bulk of the fighting now has shifted to the far east of the country. Uh, is the effort that you were a part of on the border, is that still ongoing, do you know? As I understand it, has significantly shrunken. Yeah. Um, you know, Poland as a nation really stepped up. Yeah. Um, they took two million refugees 
Um, and they basically took anybody who wanted to come. I think what happened a few weeks after I was there was that they started pulling back a little bit um, because, in part because so many people who were in Poland went back to Ukraine. You know, as soon as things in Kiev uh, stabilized a little bit, I don't know how many, but hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million or two people went back. Anyway, Poland said, you know, that they weren't open to people unless they had some other country to go to. And so, the, as, as I understand it, the volume of people coming across at Medica has shrunken, and many of the organizations, uh, the, the, the presence of that international response is much reduced. In the green room, you were talking about a medical school in Ukraine that was destroyed relatively early in the war. And if I recall correctly, and I do, you said about 5,000 medical students suddenly had no place to continue their studies. Tell us about that and efforts to relocate or, or bring some of these young people to America to continue their, their education. I, I can't imagine anything more important than having future doctors in Ukraine. Yeah, well, it, it, it was kind of amazing. One of the people that we met at the border was a medical student who was there volunteering as part of the group of people who would help people carry their luggage from the border to the buses. And when we, you know, when I realized that she was a medical student, um, I sort of, you know, we, we got the organization I was working with to kind of adopt her, and, and she became our translator. Her English wasn't perfect, but it was way better than my Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was fun because, you know, we, we put a stethoscope on her and, and made her feel medical again, um, which was kind of cool. Yeah. And she told us that her... Uh, her medical school, the National Medical University of Kharkiv, had been destroyed by the Russians in the early days of the war, which put 5,000 medical students out of medical school. And so I've been working a little bit, not as much as I, not as effectively, effectively as I'd like, to try to find a place for her to continue her education and for as many of her fellow students as possible. But it's really difficult because the the systems don't crosswalk. Um, the, the medical education in, in the Ukraine is an undergraduate degree. In the United States, it's a graduate degree, so you can't really apply to medical school here. Um, if you've been in medical school in Ukraine because you don't have a baccalaureate degree, it's all technical stuff, but really getting in the way of, of helping us find places for kids. One of my colleagues um, has found a medical school in India um, that has a crosswalking kind of education, and we're trying to get 100 medical students from Ukraine to India, um, but we'll see how it goes. We're looking for the resources to do that and so forth. That's a, it sounds like a hugely important issue. Michael, uh, earlier you had uh, sort of couched the conflict in really historic terms. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know, the, the Hitler's history in that part of Europe, Stalin's history in that part of Europe. You know, you, I think we've talked a little bit about this on this show, and you and I sort of had a brief exchange before we even started recording about sort of this moment in history. And, you know, as a, as a physician, as an educated American, someone who's aware of the world, um, can you put this in some broader context? What's, what's at play here? Oh, I think, I think all, democracy is at play at, at bottom. I mean, you know, Putin doesn't buy into what's sometimes called the rules-based system of international diplomacy. 
You know, he doesn't care about the rules. He cares only about conquest and domination. Um, and he wants what he wants, and he's not going to let anybody get in his way um, unless we get in his way. I kind of got more involved when my daughter, who's 30, called me and said, Dad, I'm afraid there's going to be a nuclear war. What can you do about it? Knowing that I was close to somebody named Dr. Bernard Laun, um, who won the international, he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985 for creating an organization called uh, International Physicians to Prevent Nuclear War. And for me, the way to prevent nuclear war is really to stop Putin. Um, and and you know, like what what he's doing and how he's going about it is exactly like what Hitler and Stalin did. Um, and it was really clear to me then, and it's clear to me now that if we as Americans don't stand up to it and support the Ukrainians who are taking the brunt of this, well, today it's Ukraine. Tomorrow it will be the nation of Georgia. Then it will be Poland and then Hungary. Um, and then we're in a very different place where democracy has no, has no place to stand. Um, and, and you can see Putin working uh, social media and creating these false... Uh, narratives all around the world, pushing nations into a kind of 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 almost fascistic um, sense of things. You know, the government in Italy just fell. The government in France hung on by uh, by just a little bit. Who knows what's going to happen in Britain because um, things are unstable there. And you know, Putin's no idiot. You know, he's a chess player, and is playing. You know, he's pulling every string he possibly can and playing the long game. And I just don't want to see us repeat um, what happened in 1939, 1940, and 1941, where we pretended it wasn't there until it was too late. If you look at Ukraine, Ukraine feels to me like Spain in 1936. You know, too few Americans remember that there was a civil war in Spain in 1936 um, in which... You know, one side was a side of democracy and the other side was supported by Mussolini and by Hitler. The Mussolini and Hitler side won. And that sort of sent a message that the Mussolini and Hitler side was not going to be opposed too much um, by the democracies of the world until we had a world war. And then, you know, we were going to lose 60 million human beings. At great cost, yeah. So, Michael, what can ordinary Americans do in the face of this? We live in a very politically divided time, both at the congressional and, and national level and, and regionally. What can ordinary Americans do? I mean, your daughter came with a question. What, what would you say for people watching this show? Well, I think as many people as possible can go there and help or can go to the border and help. Show their solidarity by putting their feet on the ground. Um, and find ways to help um, and support. You know, obviously people can send money. That's a good thing. Um, I actually think we all need to do some real looking and thinking at our own choices. Um, And this is not going to sound direct, but I I think we should start talking about boycotting goods from China because China is supporting Russia in this. um, And we get a tremendous amount of stuff from China that stuff we get from China goes to subsidize the, their support of Russia, Russia. And my guess is if we stopped buying Chinese stuff tomorrow, 
the Chinese government would change its tune um, and, and change its support. And it would also help protect Taiwan because it looks like China's looking at what Russia's doing as a pathway for how they're going to approach Taiwan itself. These are dangerous days indeed. Um, I wonder, uh, going back to your time uh, in Ukraine, uh, do you have a sense of the resolve of the Ukrainian people? Uh, it is fantastic. I mean, you know, the Ukrainian people became my heroes. They are in there, they're getting battered every single day. If you look at what the Russians are doing, they're not choosing military targets. They're blowing apart schools and apartment buildings. They're trying to intimidate and to destroy. And the Ukrainian people are sort of shifting and changing and doing everything they can to resist. Most Americans don't know that there are 7 million displaced people inside Ukraine itself. So 5 million people left Ukraine in the early days of the war. I think a million or two have gone back. But many people from eastern Ukraine, from the, the places that, are been, you know, that have been destroyed, have come to, to western Ukraine and are camped out in villages and, and in, in, uh, in schools um, waiting for the war to end. And I got to tell you that I, some of the time I got to spend in western Ukraine, it was like seeing what looked like heaven to me. Um, you know, the life in those villages was incredibly beautiful. I was there when the cherry trees were in bloom. Um, and in the villages, people live, you know, they have, they have common ground for grazing. Everybody's got chickens. Um, you know, they, 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 have, they have fish ponds that they share. Um, it's a kind of vision of rural life, rural village life. Um, that seemed incredibly beautiful to me. That's what Putin is trying to destroy, and that's what we need to stand up and help defend. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Michael Fine, a physician, author, and the former director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Earlier this year, he visited the border between Poland and Ukraine, and we're talking about that with him today. You can find Dr. Fine on Twitter at Dr. Michael Fine. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-A-E-L-F-I-N-E. So, Michael, you were here three years ago to discuss your book, Healthcare Revolt, which is a tremendous book, and, and we would urge our audience, if, if members have not read it, to go read it. That was three years ago before the pandemic, and then the pandemic hit. You were the chief health strategist for the city of Central Falls here in Rhode Island during the pandemic. And for those who might not be familiar with Central Falls, it's a small city, it's a low-income city, it's a city with many residents who are people of color. 
and it was particularly hard hit during the pandemic. But it wasn't the only such community in the country like that that was hit. Talk about first what you did in Central Falls and then the larger picture. Why were communities like that so hard hit during the pandemic? Um, well, you know, Central Falls, as you said, is small and densely populated. I'm going to answer your second question first, if I sure. may. Yeah, yes. It was hard hit because of policies that governments chose. Um, so, you know, it is a place where people have to go out to work to work every day. What we decided to do in Rhode Island when during the early days of the pandemic, when everything closed down, was to say factories could stay open and should stay open. Um, and so what was and, and in Central Falls, people live uh, in triple deckers, the how, sort of uh, houses that have three apartments in them. Um, old wooden frame houses and they sometimes live uh, four, six, eight, ten or even twelve people in a two-bedroom apartment sharing one bathroom and one kitchen. And so what was happening in Central Falls was people worked two and three jobs. They had to go out to work every day to support their families because they often didn't qualify for the kinds of uh, uh, you know unemployment that other people have because many people are not documented, so they they uh, so they went out to work every day. They, the, there are some jitney buses that leave the city early in the morning. Um, people would get into these packed jitney buses, go out to work in the fish fish houses and the meat packing plants, um, and the the the, uh, the the garment factories all over New England. They'd work, you know, sort of right close to uh, other people. So the disease spread. Um, at the workplaces, then they came back in the jitney buses, went back into the, these densely packed houses and then spread the disease un unknowingly and unwittingly um, into their families. So Central Falls became um, a couple of times, uh, as we measured it, the most infected place in Rhode Island, the most infected place in the nation, and for a bit, um, the most infected place in the world. Um, because of these social conditions which we allowed to happen. Now, what do we do? Um, we actually put together, uh, you know, the, 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 the governmental response was call your primary care doctor and your primary care doctor will get you a test. Now, one of the most interesting things was in the early days, uh, there were four testing places where people could go for a test. Um, and all of them were in a wealthy suburb and none of them were, were in Central Falls. So one of the things we did was argue, argue, argue for access to testing, though I wasn't convinced that testing itself was going to make all that much difference. But we wanted that kind of equal access. But then we built something called Beat COVID-19, which was a group of volunteers that got together and uh, dealt with the fact that of the 100,000 people between Central Falls and its neighbor city, Pawtucket, likely only 50,000 of them had access to a primary care doctor at all. So we created an 800 number. People could call the 800 number. They would get consultation with a physician, nurse practitioner, or midwife. Um, they'd get counseling about how to go in isolation and stay in isolation. Um, they'd get uh, sometimes funds. Um, money to be able to survive for a couple of weeks if they had to be in isolation. They got food and they got uh, disinfectants and they got coached for how to, how to take care of things. We built 
inside of about two weeks a whole little healthcare system um, to take care of that population of people who didn't have other access to care. It was fantastic. It was all volunteer, led by the mayor of Central Falls, um, and to a certain extent the, the, the mayor of Pawtucket. Um, you know, the governments got involved and we really did something. It was pretty spectacular. That's a remarkable story. Um, you've got a new book coming out on medicine as colonialism, and in the in the in the preface to that, you said something that struck both Wayne and I. Uh, COVID claimed more than a million lives so far in the United States, but on a per capita basis, you note that that puts the death rate in the United States at three times that of Canada, more than eight times that of Australia, and ten times that of Japan. Why did America do so badly? because we're so divided, because all we did was fight with each other about this stuff. You know, this stuff is not hard, as other countries have showed us. We lost 900,000 Americans unnecessarily when you compare us to other countries because we couldn't agree on simple stuff like wearing a mask or, you know, sort of staying home or not going out to bars and restaurants or you know, when, when there was lots of disease spreading um, or getting vaccinated. You know, I mean, it's a heartbreak. We developed the vaccine and didn't understand how to use it correctly because we were fighting with each other over stuff that to me seems relatively trivial. And I wonder in the back of my mind about the extent to which our friend Vladimir Putin wasn't egging people on um, using the social media process because he wants to see us divided. He wants to see us fighting with each other. He wants to see us weakened so he can do stuff like take over Ukraine and then Georgia and then Poland. That's his game plan, and we seem to be playing right into it in a way that seems like heartbreaking to me. So we're almost out of time, but very, very briefly, I'm wondering if you can talk about your fiction. You write nonfiction, but also fiction. What can fiction do in terms of telling stories or not telling stories that are important? You Why do about, you write fiction? About a minute. Okay, quick for, first. Um, I think fiction gives us the ability to see the inner lives of people who are different from us. And by seeing those inner lives and by seeing the whole story, as it were, um, it lets us use our moral imaginations to be connected and to show up, you know, sort of in a way that makes democracy real. When you see other people as like yourself, when you see you're connected to other people, um, then you come out and defend them and they come out and defend you and you get to argue, discuss, and decide in the public square um, and in that way, make the nation, the state, your local community as strong as possible. That's a powerful place for us to leave it. Dr. Michael Fine, thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.